Hey, it is so good to be back with you guys tonight for week three of Maximizing Marriages. Amen. Look, we have, uh, we're going to start off this evening. If you're normally here with us and you would have come uh, to a, a personal session on here, week three, we begin with the flow of shalom. You would have arrived having already uh, observed two separate sermons. The first sermon would have been Cult 45, Peacemaker, where you would have learned that peace is made through action and Afternoon Delight from Woo! September of 2018, mm. where you find out that uh, love, yeah, it's a choice. Mm. So on the topic of Colt 45, because you haven't listened to them coming into this, this teaching done in this format, we wanted to just pick up in John 3.16, and we're going to read through the 19th verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Now, undoubtedly, we've all seen that verse at baseball games. You've seen that verse everywhere. And to make matters worse, there's this popular Christian myth. The Lord loves me. <laughs> he loves me so much that he gave his son to die for me. That is not at all what John 3.16 says. And it's important that we wrap our mind around that. For God so loved the cosmos, his ordered creation. What is translated world here is cosmos, and it means the ordered, beautiful creation. He loved what he made enough to intervene when something was wrong. Come on, that's... That's a really different take than you are just so special, you are just so unique that he'd let the whole world go to hell, but he wanted to save you. Now, it's, it's bigger than even that. I want to read verse 17 to you again. For God didn't, because you never see that quoted at a baseball game. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In the Bible, you have learned that God is like a groom and that the church uh, or the believing community is like a bride. Well, salvation, according to John 3.17, comes through him. It's the male role to intervene when the order of the creation is wrong and save it. It's not through her. It's through him. As you move to verse 18, this picture starts to build even more because he uses the phrase, stands condemned already. The ordered, beautiful creation of God needed intervention on behalf of the groom, the husband, because it was in a state of condemnation. It was in decline. It turns out that the laws of thermodynamics are not just scientific, they're also spiritual. The world is in a state of entropy. Things are moving from a state of ordered creation into a state of disarray and less order. And he didn't like it. He intervened to protect the order of his creation. In verse 19, 
we get something else. This is the verdict. The verdict's already been passed. It is already true. It doesn't matter what we think about it. The verdict has already been stated. The world is in decline, and it will take the husband initiating a restorative intervening, a restorative intervention act to save it. And if that is not received, then the world cannot be saved. If it is received, then the world can be restored to a beautiful order of creation. Welcome to the flow of shalom. That's what this week is about. Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. God is the groom. The, the, your feet there is the bride's feet. This whole process is accomplished when the whole family, whole family, follows the leading of the groom. When you join in and reciprocate, then and only then do we have victory. While you're thinking through that, notice what's happening. It is the husband's job to initiate. It is the supernatural response of the wife reciprocating that actually brings the crushing blow to Satan. What Romans 16.20 is expressing is that the God of Shalom will soon crush Satan under your feet. What he initiated will come to fulfillment when you join him in it. The same thing that is true of God and his bride in the creation is true of every single home. When a husband learns to initiate from the throne of God the order that he wants and the bride joins the husband in that, it brings the crushing blow to Satan and his work. Doesn't that give you such a clear perspective of the flow of shalom? Yeah, that we're going to have victory with our king because we're becoming, becoming like him. But the second message that you would have listened to as part of the homework was afternoon delight. The, this message was, was filled with a lot of questions that then were answered. But one of the more important ones that we want to focus on is the question that was asked in the message, what is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. No, that part wasn't good. That's the disorder in the creation. <laughs> That's exactly it. We're crushing that in the name of Jesus. In the message, it, the, this question was answered by understanding that in Hebrew, love is an action more than it is just an emotion. My wife's going to share something on that. Yeah, more specifically, what we learned in that message was that love is an action that results in a choice to value the blood covenant so much that you sacrifice for it continually because God does. Marriage is a blood covenant that is established on loving, sacrificial action, beginning with the husband's initiation and the wife's reciprocation. What was so impactful about that message uh, as you would listen to it? is that weightiness and gravity of understanding that marriage is a blood covenant. And that, once again, it's established on loving, sacrificial action. Everybody say action. 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 It's going to be an important word for tonight. Woo! Get ready for action. Oh, it's action time. It's action time. So Romans 13, 8. Let's take a look at that. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. 
For he who loves his fellow man or spouse has fulfilled the law. You know that every marriage covenant has a continuing debt to love each other. With those sacrificial actions that demonstrate the sanctity of the blood covenant that you signed up for. Look, and the important part of understanding this is that it's a continuing debt to love. And that comes through the means of sacrificial actions. And those sacrificial actions are there to demonstrate the sanctity of the blood covenant that's been established. And look, this is seen first and foremost in that God was the first to act, gaining that understanding. But this is set up for an understanding so that the husband knows that he is the first one to act in this regard. Look, no matter how sacrificial, no matter how difficult or crucifying it is, it's his responsibility to be the first to act in this regard. This looks like whenever a man wants to propose to his prospective bride, he goes to the father bride and he takes action to ask for her hand in marriage. Then he is the one that gets down on his knee in public or whatever fashion it may be, but displaying that desire to have her as his bride. Well, then this progresses that when they're a household and there's something that goes creak in the middle of the night, especially if you live in Mission Bend, <laughs> or goes bang in the middle of the night. Yeah, seven plus one times. And he is the one to get out of bed and go check outside and see exactly what it is. Even if you haven't yet had time to put on your robe, you're still in your boxers and are staying in the front yard with a prospective firearm next to your side. It's hypothetical. That sounds very much like the voice of experience, Pastor Matthew. <laughs> hypothetical, like I said. But how about this? Ladies, you'll appreciate this. That husbands are the ones to step out in that sacrificial action, demonstrating the sanctity of the blood covenant. Whenever confrontation begins to come at you as a couple and the husband steps in front of the bride because he is there to bring about that action of protecting who she is. One of the things that I've always loved, Pastor, is that my wife is so confident in the biblical model that when danger arises, she jumps behind me and, and, and actually hugs me from behind to ensure I'm unable to defend myself. And, and this, this really allows me to trust the Lord in, in new ways. So wives, our supernatural response to seeing God's action or your husband's action is to reciprocate, right? <coughs> Knowing that the entire cosmos, the entire order of your marriage will be better for it. If you just sit on your rear end and do nothing while your husband's initiating, what kind of fruit do you expect to have? It's our job to have that supernatural response so that cosmos can be established that right order in our, in our marriage. Amen. Yeah. Now, so, when you think cosmos, real quick, ordered, beauty of the creation. But this church already also knows that it's where you get the word cosmology, cosmetology, each of those things. In the Bible, it's often even translated beauty or beautiful. Yeah. You could think of this as God had made something so beautiful that he loved it. And that love compels him to act on behalf of saving it. That should be the same motivator in a husband for the cosmos of his marriage. Amen. Church, so you've heard about Colt 45 Peacemaker. And I encourage you, if you haven't listened to that in a while, 
That was from Pastor Eric in October of 2006. Jeez, we're getting old. (laughs) See, when you think about that from a world's perspective, we want to make it antiquated or outdated. Actually, I think you see that it's aged like fine wine. You can listen to Afternoon Delight and glean incredible things from September of 2018. See, you would have arrived at a session with us with this homework in hand, ready to talk about it. The other thing that you would have done was arrived with your homework in hand about your love languages. See, we didn't forget. So right now, we're going to go into a group exercise. Is this the one that Hannah Parsons is going to demonstrate? I believe that Hannah is going to demonstrate this because I heard she has a special revelation. I don't know. It had something to do with Darth Vader. I I didn't understand it all. But... Actually, I think it'd be better if the whole group okay. uh, did. Oh, okay. okay. We'll, we'll, we'll do that. So, all the husbands, husbands, initiate sharing your love language with your wife. Wives, reciprocate by sharing your love language with your husband. All right, all right. Now, we know that we're having success for a few reasons. One is we notice some of you are sitting in the laps of others of you. <laughs> you know, there was another observation that it just, you know, make of it what you will. But if, if your love language, well, I don't know, if you're newly married and it didn't last as long as you wanted it to, you get to add to this every year. I couldn't help but notice that some of you that had been married a long time didn't, didn't finish your love language during our break time. That's also normal. It's just kind of spiritual biology. You should add to your love language regularly. Okay? Uh, ladies, do you get tired of hearing the love language? Does it get old? Husbands, wake up. Wait, 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 wake up. Get, get some game. You should get better at this every year. There should be some stamina involved in your spiritual love language. That's a good word. That's a good word. Somebody say maximizing. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're welcome. Oh, uh, yeah. Wait, wait till week five, Charlie. This is going to change our church. We're going to build out our children's church again. It's... You people are going to have trophies from marriage counseling. (laughs) See, one of the other benefits here is just to see, you can feel the atmosphere of the room. You can feel what it's done just a few minutes of doing this. Uh, Christy and I would actually like to demonstrate this, uh, what sharing your love language looks like. In front of everyone, no pressure. Uh, We want to start off with this slide to show you a couple of really, really tiny little kids there. That was in January, that was January 11th of 1997. That was uh, a few days ago. Just a few. Look, I'm going to read to you from uh, Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31, as uh, I have written it, or at least one iteration that I have for my wife. Christy, my dearest one, the one that my heart loves and longs for. Because you've been strengthened from the heavens, you are a prize of incalculable worth. The most valuable gems, they pale in comparison to what God has put within you and your influence. 
Your strength and leadership in our home provides a haven for my heart to safely trust, knowing that you, your value is undeniable. It is your noble and tireless pursuit to think of my best interest, to care for me, to be a true easer. This is the pathway of your life. This is what you have dedicated your very existence to. Christy, as people enter into our life and our home, they are moved as you willingly serve with a joyful, excited heart. You're always looking to find the revelation of those things that are pure, right, true, noble, prudent, good. There's no distance or difficulty that can keep the winds of inspiration from moving your actions to bring about good for me, for our family, and even our friends here. Christy, you work tirelessly to make sure that people are securely attached to our life, to our family, and to LCM. Your concern, genuine, deep concern for each person, whether it's seen or unseen, is not only an Abigail trait, but it rightly reflects the very heart of Christ to me and to anyone who knows you. You continually search, you continually explore opportunities to nourish and provide for us as a family, giving from your own abundance to make sure that we have abundance both today and for tomorrow. I've seen you gather your strength many times and throw yourself into the work, into your work, the work. Whether it's a late night project, or two, or three, Last-minute outreaches or life-giving bursts that you share with our people here, you are always up to the challenge. You are a bold, faithful, beautiful wife. The tasks and seasons that overwhelm others, you are always able to get your arms around. Containing within yourself the needed concern and the required stamina to satisfy the full depth of the task. which makes this next one very difficult to say. <laughs> you are able to grab hold of your work. <laughs> and your worship. Yes. With equal fervor, never letting go. Your arms are strong for the task. Christy, because you are able to tame your fears and open your hands to those around you. Generosity, compassion, and comfort are available for everyone in need. There is not a better friend, there's not a better pastor's wife, there's not a better person that anyone could ask for than you. You've taken hold of the teaching and the way of life that has been set before you, and because of this, you are able to rightly bind the hearts of our children and those who are being added to our household and those who are being added to this church to the righteous standard. You're fearless, and you help our children and our household be clothed in deeds that are blood-bought, spirit-led, and heaven-approved. Christy, your desire to be obedient to the demands of ministry and the call of Christ conquers the chaos of our past and establishes mighty and divinely established actions. I'm able to be respected because you, because you're my wife. Your life is my crown. Our children are able to continue in this highway of holiness, this roadway of righteousness, this corridor of the kings, because you are with me. When things become difficult and troubling, your heart is to grab those you love and protect us with diligent actions that are not only good for us, but also benefit all who come 
in contact with us. Christy, you've developed an eye that can see far beyond the natural realm. You can take shade in knowing that God is with us. You are ornamented and clothed with the strength of the Almighty. Your confidence in Him always is always for overwhelming joy and not fear about our future. You are always trusting that our boundary lines have in fact fallen in pleasant places. Inspired and carried by the winds of the Spirit, you are able to sow wise counsel and faithful and loving instruction. Your words bring healing. You wait to see what is going on in our family and in the lives of others, and you're ready to hunt down any and all obstructions, impediments, and obstacles for any victory that must be achieved. As time marches on, not only will praise proceed from the platform of my life, but our children will rise and bring great happiness to you. Be reminded of Psalm 45, verse 16 and 17. It will happen as sure as the sun rises. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory throughout all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. Let your confidence rise as mine has. You are the object of my affection, the apple of my eye, the music of my song, the rhythm of my heart, the dance in my feet, the light in my life, and the love of my life. Christy, you're a woman who fiercely presses into the fear of the Lord and are worthy of not only encouragement but praise as the scriptures have said. When all is said and done, your righteousness, joyfully radiant, anointed actions will not only define your life, they will be the monument that what the Lord purposed from the beginning has been accomplished in you. May you reap all good things as our great king rewards your faith-filled, ever-growing, and ongoing actions. Wow. <laughs> that never gets old. Never. <laughs> ever, ever. That's amazing. Okay. Y'all bear with me here. All right. Wait. I'm going to do out a Song of Solomon 5, 10 through 16. My beloved is true, handsome, and strong. His mind is like the finest of gold. His locks are dense and dark. His eyes are like the eagle, sharp, keen, and clear. His voice, his words, are warm, reassuring, and sure, focused on the future ahead. His cheeks are chiseled, yet soft to the touch of my lips. The color of his beard is multifaceted, like the color of a fall day. His lips are full and dripping with desire. His hands are firm, steady, and strong. And his shoulders broad, distinguished, and well able to t carry his load and any weight that he desires. His legs are like great oaks, strong, powerful, and able to stand, set firmly upon deep-rooted mountains, not shaken, not shaken. His appearance to me is like that of my favorite coast, settling my soul, bringing joy to my heart, and passion to my spirit. He is refreshing and full of wonder and such possibilities. The future is ours. His mouth is sweet and altogether desirable. He is mine. This is my king. This is my beloved. This is my desire. 
to the man I pledge my love, my body, and my life to, O daughters of Jerusalem. While they're catching their breath, <laughs> what you just heard is an honest adaptation of Proverbs 31 and Song of Songs 5. What you may not readily recognize is both of those passages have intrinsic Hebrew qualities to them. So in Proverbs 31, when Wade is listing those things, the verse that begins with an Aleph has to do with her leadership. The verse that begins with a Bet has to do with what she does in a home. So it's both matching the subcontext and the context of every verse. Notice that Proverbs 31 praises a woman for actions that are beautiful, while Song of Songs 5 teaches a woman to also praise the physical attributes of her husband. If you would like help developing that, we will help you. But it should be your lifetime goal to interact with that scripture and imitate what you see the holy written word of God doing in teaching you to edify your spouse. It turns out that as much as you thought you had game, God has got much more. That's a good word. It's an amazingly refreshing thing to hear words from the one that you love to speak to you. Um, it's an amazing and refreshing thing, and especially when you consider the deficiency that Christy and I came from. Absolutely, abjectly deficient when we first arrived here at this church. See, we love the Lord. We married and we were both in the faith. Uh, we were pretty consistent on reading the word together, praying together. As far as we knew, we were never trying to be out of the Lord's will in any way. And, somebody say and. and. Our marriage was in complete disarray and we didn't know it. We were a hot mess and thought that we were exemplary in most cases until we got here and began to see what the Word of God actually says. We weren't fighting every day. We weren't hostile towards one another. There wasn't a lot of animosity towards one another. Uh, we had a type of peace, but we were not each other's easers or proper helpmates as the Bible teaches. We had become separate separate responsibilities, separate interests, separate lives in just so many ways. Uh, Wade would leave early in the mornings and he would be um, amongst his day and about his day. He would have his responsibilities at church and in ministry, uh, teaching, counseling with peoples. And I busied myself uh, with being a mom, leading mom's groups, having little ones in diapers, doing the kids' schoolings, ministering to women. Uh, we were running parallel lives. Do you know what that means? Yeah. Running, we're going in the same direction, but we're running parallel to one another instead of together. We weren't clashing, but definitely not together and united and not producing any fruit that would last because it wasn't God's prescribed ways. See, we had our system going. To be honest with you, I don't think there would have been a point, even had we not come here, which is even, that pains me to say, 
But even had we not come here, I don't think that our end would have been divorce. I think we would have stayed together because we genuinely love each other and we were committed. But we were producing zero fruit. That's difficult to say. See, because our Nabal traits are not very volatile towards each other. No. <laughs> when I'm operating in Nabal and she's operating in Nabal, we do not explode typically. Mm-hmm. They actually fit together kind of nicely. It's kind of comfortable. I'm Nabal, she's Nabal, and we can get along just fine and usually not even particularly argue. Yeah. Now, you might be on a different end of the spectrum. When you get into Nabal, in Nabal traits, you, you just explode. <laughs> it was like, yeah, we have no idea what you're talking about, bro. But the truth is, is there, there's at least half of you in this room that know exactly what I'm talking about. You actually know it, uh, explicitly what we're talking about because your Nabal traits don't cause you to explode. You just kind of, you're able to compensate for each other. It's kind of a symbiotic thing that you go back and forth and it actually feeds off of each other. And that's terrible for us to say about us as, as, as adults. But it was more clearly seen in our kids when we got here. Our kids weren't really saved. Our kids were not spirit-filled. What we were actually producing in our life, when we talk about ministry, the truth is, is we were busying ourselves with a lot of things that looked like ministry, but we weren't producing fruit. And we thought all the while that we had it together. See, but I know that there are some of you in the room that have the same kind of situation. A husband that work hard, a wife that can sit back and let her husband work hard. I mean, not that we would know anything about those things, but you, there's a lot of things that just kind of work together. See, I've actually heard people say these kind of things, that our marriage was fine before we got here to LCM. I was doing great before I went to the doctor and was diagnosed with high cholesterol. It was the diagnosis. It was the diagnosis that, did it. that caused the problem. How dare you tell me what the truth of my cancer diagnosis is? We were sick, we were pathetic, and we didn't know it. See, if you've ever thought that, I don't know that those words ever came out of our, our mouths, but the sentiment did, and I have to be honest with you. The sentiment came in. Why were we so good for so long? The answer is, is we weren't doing good. We just didn't know it it because we were happy in our mediocrity. We were happy with trying to think that we were doing something for the Lord. And it wasn't that our effort wasn't there. It's that we weren't doing it according to the prescribed way. And we were producing nothing. See, we had to understand. And that's one of the things that this very teaching, week three, in the flow of Shalom, began to revolutionize our life because we wanted something different and we saw a place that was not only speaking it, but we're living in and putting it on display. We are blessed in this house. These teachings are the fruit of pastors walking through this with other couples and searching the word and being desperate for the treasures uh, of the word to be able to help and heal and, and make marriages thrive. And once we were blessed to be a part of it and, and get our hands on this and our minds and our hearts wrapped around it, um, it was the prescribed way that we addressed it our life to. 
we had to learn to identify our Nabal traits and commit to build into each other the godly design of leading and following rightly. I had to learn that I had to initiate. It was God's design for me and to demonstrate sacrificial love and that Christy would learn to respond. I had to learn that, that she would also learn to respond, and that brought us into unity of function as we became each other's easers. See, things were in a state of decline without us even knowing it. We didn't know it. That's so embarrassing to say, and it would be more embarrassing if it were still true in our life. But now we can see we just didn't know what we didn't know. See, but when we began to water daily, when we began to follow these principles daily in our lives, we began to produce the kind of fruit that our great king deserves. Amen. I want to show you a picture. These guys were trying and hopeful, but this is a picture of a different kind of wedding. This is a different kind of picture. The truth is, is that our children, our lives, our marriage now produce more in a single week than we ever had produced combined for the composite of our life before that. That sounds like it's hyperbole. That sounds like I'm over-speaking it, but I'm actually not saying enough about it. That these principles that you have here, this principle that we're trying to share with you tonight about getting the flow of shalom right in your life, whether you are the volatile couple and your Nabal traits clash and easily, easily you find out those, or if they're the symbiotic kind like Christy and I have, the answer is still the same. The answer is what we're presenting to you tonight. You're going to want to turn towards Matthew chapter 5. And as we do, we were thinking about ways, ways to help you grasp some fundamental building blocks to be able to properly apply what we're teaching because many of you have heard what we're teaching before. In the Sutherland's testimony, they didn't understand the state they were in. I've sat down with so many of you and done marriage counseling, and it actually seemed to get worse for a while before it got better. That's because you didn't understand the kind of surface you were standing on. Yeah. It was bent, you were bent, and you felt normal being bent. And as you start to stand up right and shoulder the calling, it actually hurts a little bit, like correcting bad posture. Yeah. And the longer that you do it, the more normal your home and life becomes around you. So uh, we set up cameras on Highway 6 and captured Jennifer on the way to Sam's. And, uh, and we wanted to show you what that looked like. Jennifer, it was Brenton, and uh, <laughs> we only had to pull him out twice. <laughs> That's it. Did you notice? Did you notice that the surface that he was on was slippery? The surface that he was on was inclined, and as soon as he let off of the forward momentum, 
as soon as he let up pressure off the throttle, immediately slides backwards. Not only is the world a slippery, inclined, evilly inclined surface, but the moment that you let up, you have an evil inclination that the Jews call the Yetzirah inside of you. Those two things create quite a slippery, steep slope. Let's read Matthew 5, 9 together. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, to start with, if Jesus is speaking Hebrew, he is saying, blessed are the shalom makers, for they will be called sons of God. In Hebrew, the word for son is ben. And it, it's not a biological designation alone. In fact, if you are very much like someone, you are considered their son in Hebrew. Uh, so much so that Moses is credited with the children of Aaron simply because he taught them Torah. They're called his sons in the book of Numbers. Now I say that because blessed are the shalom makers for they will be called sons of God Something about imitating God's desire for the love of order in the creation and intervening to make it orderly makes you very much like God. It makes you like his son. We're not allowed to sit back and simply try to keep peace. The UN does that. It's sinful. It's wicked, it's full of rubber, impotent bullets, it doesn't work. Sons of God, at the cost even of their lives, must intervene. They must take action because they love the order of God's creation and they will not let it go. So when we have it here, we have peace is made and not kept. Just simple examples for like wives. Uh, how many of y'all clean your house and then 15 minutes later, everything's destroyed and it's just like shocking how you have to constantly be pursuing cleaning your house. Uh, you know, you turn around and you have to sweep again and there's dust on the floor and you're just constantly having to search it. Moms, how many times do you know your kid is sitting somewhere right there with a snack and I mean, you blink and the snacks all over the walls, you know, or something's <laughs> happened. And it's shocking how you're constantly at this, uh, this motion or this, this force being pushed on you that you're trying to pursue. It's something that you're always having to try and, um, and, and to take care of. It's that chaos that you're always trying to take care of. The reality is that doing nothing it doesn't make nothing happen to you. Not, that's, that's, I wish that that were the case. Doing nothing causes extraordinary detriment to you. And it causes extraordinary detriment to you because the world itself is in a rapid state of decline and you are in the world. So it's, well, it's not a problem. We're not, we're not fighting. Yes, but by not fighting, that does not cause you to produce kingdom fruit. That's, that is, uh, passivity will never accomplish the kingdom. It requires action. Now, in this church, we've been teaching on the definition of shalom for years. It has spread to all of the other ministries. 
I wanted to show you in a Lexingham Bible Dictionary a couple selections regarding shalom. Here you see shalom written in Hebrew, and it says a pervasive concept in the Bible that most commonly relates to a relationship of love and loyalty with God and one another. Do you hear those two elements in it? I've been saying this for years, and we just saw in print, Shalom is best understood in the majoritative sense of having a right relationship with God and a re right relationship with your fellow man because of it. That doesn't mean that there's no hostilities with your fellow man. It means that you are standing with God where you must, and so you stand with people where you must, no matter how they're reacting to you. Does that make sense? Yeah. The Lexingham Bible Dictionary goes on to say something rather shocking. It says, for example, this would be our next slide. For example, when David asked Uriah how the battle with the Ammonites is progressing, he asked concerning the peace or shalom of Joab and the shalom of the people and the shalom of the war. In this case, peace does not refer to the absence of hostilities but the welfare of those involved and the progression of the fighting. Understand that in English, you could never use the phrase peace of war because peace is the absence of war to us. To a Hebrew, peace is standing where God tells you to stand with him first and men second. So the phrase shalom of war has no contradiction in it of any kind in Hebrew. What this would literally be understood as is how does Joab stand with God and men? How do the people with Joab stand with God and men? And how is the progress of the war going with God and with men in relation to those things? Is that a little bit eye-opening? Yeah. To further this concept as we move through it, to be able to grab hold of it, implement it in your homes, and hopefully teach it around the world, as I'm sure many of you will. The phrase, mashlomka, in Hebrew, is the standard greeting. Now, because of that, you read many different definitions for shalom in the Bible. Oh, it can mean hello. Well, yes, and at the same time, an astounding big fat no. <laughs> it's, it's literally translated what is the state of your shalom? That would be its most literal definition. This means that when Tom meets Martha and he says, Mashlomka, he's saying hello, but much more than hello, he's inquiring on the deepest possible level. How does your soul, your mind, your body set in relation to the will of God and those that are around you? And his hope is that her response is shalom. Like, I am in right order with God and man. That is the standard greeting throughout the Bible. Because it's the most important thing that we could know about each other. Because you'll find out it's the foundation for all of ministry. A home out of order produces a ministry out of order. No matter how you preach, no matter what good deeds you believe you're involved in... If you and your home are not rightly ordered with God and each other, well, 
It's difficult to bring right order to the world that is already on the slippery slope of chaos. We want to show you some clear, concise, and practical biblical steps of how to establish right shalom so you can have a, a home that ministry flows out of because it's in right order. Let's look at Psalm 34, verse 14. It says, turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Do you guys see that there are four action verbs in this verse? Okay, we're talking about establishing shalom. We have to do all four of these verbs. Halfway is not going to cut it. So let's go through some of these. The first one, turn. Teshiva. It's the same word for repent, to turn away from it. So we have to turn away from something that we've identified as an evil. You're in a ball trade. When you recognize that you are, um, a Nabal trade is in play at the moment, you've got to turn from that. But is that enough? No. So if I recognize that I'm offended with Matt in the moment, we're starting to have a fight, Shalom is disrupted in our home, and I recognize I have taken on an offense with him, I'm just going to, okay, I'm going to put that aside. I'm not going to be offended with him anymore. Is that enough to establish Shalom? No. I have to do the next thing, which says, do good. Yeah. And that word do, I love this word. This is asa in Hebrew. And if you think back to Genesis, there are two words in the biblical creation story. Bara and asa. Bara is to create from nothing. Asa is to create from what you've already been given or to accomplish something from what you've already been given. So in this verse, it says to do good, accomplish good with what you've already been given. What does that tell me? It tells me I've been given an Abigail nature. So it's not enough for me to stop being offended. I must now do loving actions towards him. I must now be sacrificial towards him. I must now engage my Abigail nature and do the opposite of that and walk in the opposite direction and accomplish something good here. Halfway. This, this is one of the things that is really wrong in the Christian community. And we, we're going to have to wrestle with it because it affects the way we raise our children, the way that we run our homes, and the way that we run ministries. To recognize an evil and turn from it, that is a great first step. But if we don't move on to Asa, taking exactly what God has invested in you and doing something good with it, then what this looks like in a practical sense among fairly moral people is that your life is defined by rules and responsibilities. Yeah. So I'm a good person because I don't do this. I don't do this. And all you ever tell your kids is what they should not do. But that is not at all what the flow of shalom is. Yeah. It must progress away from what you should not do and towards what you have been given the design to do. In the early years of teaching, even week one, dealing with the flesh, all people were walking away with is don't be Nabal. That is such a bastardization of the teaching that it makes me want to vomit. The point is not just to kill Nabal, but it is to become Abigail. Yeah. If you focus yeah. your whole life on what you're not supposed to be, you are spending your whole life on what you're not supposed to be. I've seen this even in Christian ministers. And you know what? Their children end up not loving the Lord until somebody intervenes. 
their lives are based on not being something rather than asa. And in the charismatic community, there's another problem. The two words in creation, asa and bara, bara to speak ex nihilo, to speak something out of absolute nothing. This is what Pentecostals want. You want to turn from evil and God go, and now all, all is good. It doesn't work that way. He expects you to take from what he has given you and make, accomplish, war, fight for what is good. And that's why you cannot define shalom as the absence of hostility or the absence of strife or the absence of difficult. The worst, trans, the, the worst definition you'll ever find is the idea that shalom is tranquility. Yeah. It's the furthest thing from tranquility. It's actually agonizingly, crucifyingly difficult because it's the death of your will to accomplish God's in a given situation. It is. Look, this, is, this has given us such good clarity to know how to rightly establish shalom. And it's four action verbs. I can say for me and Cassidy, we're one of those volatile couples. Explosive. <laughs> and we, we honestly didn't progress past just the first action verb. We didn't move on to asa and begin to make uh, a, a shalom based on what God had already given us. We just thought that because we weren't at a, a point of explosion and volatility, that all things had been established into what peace was, that we're doing good. And that was not God's right order in his establishment of peace. But when you rightly begin to asa, begin to make shalom with what he's already given you, it will absolutely move you to the next two, the last two of the four uh, action verbs. And that one is, uh, the, the next one is seek. This word seek means to search for, to look for God's right order, to know what God's right order is. So after having made something, made shalom with the Abigail nature that you're, you've been given, you are looking through that scope that has the reticle, that horizontal and vertical relationship. You're setting your sights on the right target of what you're supposed to do next. Well, this is absolutely reflective in 1 John 1. If we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another. We have that vertical and horizontal relationship that's right. And it's then that we're able to see what that right target is and move on to the fourth action verb, and that's to pursue. See, it's not good enough just to set my sight on, hey, that's the right teaching. That's the right order of shalom. I need to just look at it or know that it exists. No, the final action verb is to pursue it. And this means to chase it, to hunt it down. I will not stop until I have obtained full possession of it. This is exactly what we're seeing in, the, in this video of the, the mud climb with the car, that there needed to be an ongoing action, constant moving uh, to go forward. And you saw that point where he took his foot off the gas. He just relaxed a little bit. And immediately he began to slide into the decline of that earthy, muddy nastiness. This is what happens to us. If we take our hand off of the pursuit, if we slack on that pursuit, immediately we'll start to slide back into our evil desires. Yeah, yeah that, in fact, you can see it in a marriage. 
It's, it's not that you're doing something that's wicked. You didn't go out and commit adultery on each other. It's that you're not doing the thing that you know to do that is right. And you don't realize that you're moving in the wrong direction because you feel like you just didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. But that has nothing to do with advancing the kingdom on a slippery slope of a world in decline. Yeah. With, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No. <laughs> just to give a personal testimony i remember in my life this scripture and us teaching this in the beginning and something that really like would hit me was i'm not i'm i can be argumentative with eric at times and in a conversation or a fight i'll just argue (laughs) i'm dying to that but the the doing where i should repent and i knew i needed to repent that was difficult and i i learned to die to myself and to Asa, I knew I had the tools. I knew I was capable of doing it. And immediately when I learned to be that peacemaker and that peace speech, you know, to say, I'm sorry, I repent right now. I have been, then immediately it made the seeking, the pursuing so much easier. But identifying immediately, I need to repent in this situation right now for my actions. Then the Lord was able to move quickly. So it's not just repentance. It's not, I'm sorry that I called you uh, a certain kind of hole. Um, that, that's, that's, it's great that that doesn't occur anymore. But that's not the, the point. The point is, I'm sorry that that speech was argumentative because God called me to, and then you give peacemaking Amen. speech. That is the entire, that is the advancement of Shalom. That's as right order and right warfare as you wouldn't have to pursue something that was not elusive, that was not trying to get away from you all of the time. In fact, uh, just because I love you, if I use an example like I just did, a certain kind of hole you were called, right? Well, some of you, the very first thought comes to your mind is, I've never said that, or I would never say that, or my husband wouldn't. What do you think that has to do with what we're talking about? Yeah. See, it's not about what you don't do, because if you did not progress to what you should be saying to your spouse, then it's much like Wade and Christie's early testimony. You believe you're doing just fine, but it will show up in 10 or 20 years of your lack of production in the kingdom. Yeah. And we want you to produce in the kingdom. And that's why we're teaching these things. When when pastor said that the pursuit is chasing or hunting something that is elusive, hunting it down. uh, I see in my own life since we've been here, we've been pursuing shalom through these four steps as aided by our ministry partners. And there have been times in my life when I would be passive and we know that you can not, never obtain peace through passivity so i was like okay i'm not going to be passive more now i'm going to be completely volatile and aggressive and go to the other side i'm still operating within the ball i haven't even done the first of the four actions that stated in in psalm 34 14 but as we begin to rightly go through these actionable steps i see that number one the bible never encourages passivity And the kingdom is never advanced by simply just stopping evil behavior. But instead, walking through each one of these actionable steps rightly is bringing me and bringing my household into the right order of shalom. Somebody say turn. Turn. Do. Do. Seek. 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 Pursue. 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 
One of four is an F. Yeah. Two of four, still an F. Yeah. Three of four, on the grading scale I grew up on, still an F. Yeah. It takes four of four, and then it's 100% A+. Plus. Anything less than all four is not shalom. Yeah. Yeah. We're taking just a minute to develop this out just a little bit. I hope you're understanding the import of what's going on. It's not enough for you to be able to say that there are four action verbs in this verse in Psalm 34, 14, if you're not doing them. The idea of what was in our life was we had many little gems, many things that we that we thought that we knew, and we weren't putting things into this kind of practice according to the word of God. And when we did, our life shifted and changed dramatically and rapidly. And you've been able to see most of you have been here long enough to see a transition and the progress in our lives. And that's the same kind of progress that we want in yours. See, it's not enough for you to sit at a table and let's and, and struggle to get through anything of an uh, Abigail traits with the people at your table. It's, we want to see you actually find shalom, actually turn from evil, do good, seek after shalom, and go after it. Because that's when you become dangerous to the enemy. That's when you become productive, and that's what we're going for. Okay, we're going to go to Ephesians 4, verses 20 through 29. One thing I love about that Psalm 34 is that last, that last little part to pursue it. It's an ongoing action. Ongoing. That's an everyday pursuit of it. If we, if we decline a little bit in our efforts, we're sliding back down, even though you might not have conflict. And that's what I was going to say when we were talking about that. It triggered something. Matt and I were very explosive in our fights. And as we've grown older, we've calmed down a lot. Like, we don't <laughs> just calm down. We've actually put these things into practice is yeah. the truth of it. But there were moments where we thought, oh, God, we probably shouldn't yell at each other anymore. Let's just stop yelling. And so then we had the other. Then we, we turned into kind of Wade and Christie's model where we were just kind of getting along just to get along, you know. And, but we weren't producing any fruit. It's that ongoing pursuit of shalom, right order. If it's not being pursued, it's not going to be established. Mama said, if you can't say anything nice, then... Mama was wrong. That's not anywhere near good enough. You must say what is right. It's not enough to simply not say anything at all. All that has to happen, as one man famously said, for evil to prevail is good men do nothing you know why we have so many bad marriages in the world we got a lot of do nothing men week three is about male responsibility to lead a home let's get to ephesians 4 some good actions here okay ephesians 4 verse 20 that however is not the way of life you learned when you heard about christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in jesus you were taught with regard, regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. 
Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. This passage in Ephesians has several examples that we want to show you of Psalm 34, 14. Turn, do, seek, and pursue. So let's put the next slide. The actions listed in Ephesians 4. The first one that's listed is the action of putting off the old self. But it continues with put on the new self. That righteous thing that you are to pursue. The next one is to put off falsehood. It then moves to speak truthfully. Next, must steal no longer. But it doesn't end there. It must move on towards you must work. The last one, no unwholesome talk is to come out of your mouth, but it is pursuing to speak only what is helpful for building others up. So See, you can't do just one half of those. See, if you focus on the left side of the screen only, you're on an evil incline and not uh, speaking falsely. That, that won't advance the kingdom. It won't advance your life. It's the predicate to being able to speak truthfully. See, doing only the ones on the left, you'll be a good Mormon. You'll be a good Jehovah's Witness. You, you'll be what is considered by some to be a moral person. But you will not advance God's kingdom in a world in decline. It is not making peace. That, at best, is keeping peace. Yeah. Everything on the left could be viewed as passive. Everything on the right is definitely action-oriented moving forward. So the left side is repentance. The right side is asa, making something with what you were given. This is an important principle because Christians all too often define a good marriage by the fact that they are not sleeping with their neighbors. A good marriage by the fact that they're not fighting. Well, friends, you cannot fight and not produce anything for God. That's not a good marriage. The reason your marriage came together was to perform a function in the kingdom. And what we are after are productive marriages. Is that what you're after? Yeah. See, it's so encouraging for us to be getting a glimpse of what God's view of shalom is. That it's not the cessation or absence of hostilities. As a matter of fact, you can be in the midst of war and be asking how the shalom of the war is. See, your enemies, your difficulties, those things don't negate an actual shalom, shalom from the heavens. See, I love the fact, speaking honestly as those who came from having their own thoughts about what peace and shalom is, understanding that it is so not what God's thoughts are. We spent our whole life in the wrong model, and now we've seen it, and we understand the importance of it. Because God never defines peace as tranquility. So let's go to Leviticus chapter 26, so we can see God's definition of shalom further. Leviticus 26, 1 is where we'll start. <laughs> says, do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourself. And do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. 
See, this passage gives us a clear picture of uh, much of what our pastors have just said from Ephesians 4, understanding. This is a clear example of putting off the old self, turning from evil. See, but <laughs> you know better. But we're going to start off, we know that this verse actually applies to us. Somebody say, this verse applies to me. This verse applies to me. Wait, what are you talking about, pastor? Let's, let's talk just for a second about the idols of your own thoughts and desires. Let's talk about the idolatry that the Sutherlands walked in, having our own definition of what we thought righteousness was. We had no fruit, and we thought we were just fine going about our way. That's idolatrous that we had our own thoughts, our own desires. We just wanted to determine what good enough was. We just decided, did it feel good today? Yep, it felt good. I guess that's good enough. That's idolatrous in us when we allow a good enough mentality instead of seeking after the shalom that God is, or, uh, that is for us with. He has to do this and we have to get rid of any images. Come on, talk about the images of what you think your life should look like. Come on, talk about those idolatrous thoughts that you hold on to. No, I'm just fine. I hear what they're saying and we're good enough. Thank you very much. Those are idolatrous things in us, but we also have some uh, sacred stones that are in our lives as well. Yeah. Some of those sacred stones might look like, um, I want a peaceful dinner so that you don't correct your kids. Your kids can be going buck wild, but you just want to go out to eat. You just want to have a conversation with your husband and your kids are going crazy and you don't stop and, and take hold of those kids and discipline them right then, Right. If that one's not your flavor, perhaps you have a sacred stone that, man, I just want to get a romantic date with my spouse. I mean, I just want to have a little, a little quiet time with my spouse. And we all know that it's not just the romantic date that we're after. We're after concluding the night and some passionate sex with our spouse. That is what we're after. So, you know, because that is the, out, that is the goal here, we're just not going to address the obvious issues that are between you. We're not going to actually take care of the things that should be said because we're just trying to keep the peace. We're just trying to get to the goal that we're hoping for. All of the men's eyes have dropped to the ground. I, I mean, I, I can't help it. I know you and I'm white. All, all the guys just went. <laughs> sacred stone, sacred man. Sacred stone. That's exactly it. Yeah, another sacred stone might be waiting for the right time to address uh, something. Or the right time never comes. And so instead of taking those moments and going, no, I need to do it now because I see it now, uh, that would be a sacred stone to watch out for. Here's one other one. Maybe you're hanging out with your brothers. You're getting some good... Uh, QT and get some good quality time in with the brothers and you can't be bothered to step away from fellowship to actually pastor your wife. I mean, you can't actually take a moment to step away from the fellowship to actually pastor your children. Yeah, it's it's deathly quiet in the room. So hey, honey, get the kids. They're crying. I'm trying to talk here. I've never heard that in my home on a Sunday night. That's not shalom. That's, that's, that's not shalom. That's an abdication of your God-given responsibility, not to mention that you're shaming your wife publicly. Uh, well, congratulations. Turnabout seems like fair play. Let's continue on now that we've gotten a picture 
of what idolatry and that imagery looks like along with sacred stones. Look down in verse 6. We're same chapter in Leviticus 26. It says, I will grant peace in the land, and you will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land, and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies, and they will fall by the sword before you. Five of you will chase a hundred, and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand, and your enemies will fall by the sword before you. What a beautiful passage of scripture that helps define what shalom is. God says, I will grant shalom in the land. You will lie down and no one will make you afraid. I'm going to take care of these things. But in the very next verse, God gives his, his principle of what shalom is. He says, yeah, the reason I'm going to give you peace in the land, the reason I, reason I will grant shalom in the land is that I'm going to make you have to pursue your enemies to come bring that about. They're going to fall by the sword before you. See, you're not going to be afraid. Why? Because they're falling by the sword. I'm going to remove the things that are detrimental to you. Why? Because you're putting them to flight. You have to chase the hundreds and the thousands of your enemies before you. Because peace is not about an absence of hostility. You don't need a few more minutes to just be quiet, to just watch something, to just do anything else other than address the issue that's before you. Because real shalom is about fighting the Lord's battles. And if it's really the Lord's battle, then that also determines your timing for fighting this battle. It's now. It's the only thing that matters for you to get into shalom is to fight the Lord's battle and for you to stay in harmony with God's will. And it doesn't matter how difficult it gets. It doesn't matter how late it is. It doesn't matter how turbulent the time because shalom is not an absence of hostility. It is the presence of you fighting the Lord's battle and staying in harmony with him. Church, this is the the principle that you understand throughout the scripture. Anytime you know the good that you ought to do and you don't do it, you are a peacekeeper. You are just keeping peace no matter how you've rationalized it in your own thoughts. You become a son of this world. But anytime you do the good that you know you're supposed to, you engage in the conversation, you fight the Lord's battle, then you are, in fact, a son of God, a peacemaker. Look at your girl and say, I'm a peacemaker, baby. All right, now, ladies, respond. I'm going to make peace with you. Woo! Sounds like we're all getting a peace. That's right. That's right. Amen. Peace is not obtained through passivity. Uh, you must remove the idols and obey what you know is, uh, I'm sorry, obey what you know is right according to the word of God. Wherever you are being a peacekeeper reveals an idol. Everybody say idol. Idol. Idols for me can look like fear. Fear of confrontation. Uh, fear of loss. Loss of your husband's affection or approval. Anything that stands above or sits on the throne of your heart instead of pressing into being a peacemaker is an idol. But whatever, wherever you are being being a peacemaker, you have just destroyed that idol. You've heard about the problem. Would you like to hear about some solutions? Well, amen. So we're going to go to Romans 12, and we're going to start in verse 1. 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good and pleasing and perfect will. So if you all have ever had a garden or ever had a plant outside, you don't have to do very much and the weeds are growing around it. I mean, you just blink and they're out there and they're literally choking the thing that you're trying to grow. Conforming with the world, um, this is that. Yeah, so it's hard work to get something to grow out of the ground. That's been true since Genesis 3. It's not hard work for weeds to grow. It's the natural state of things. When you start to apply that to your marriage, well, we really, you know, I don't know that we had big problems before we started marriage counseling. Yeah, you've just now begun the hard work of getting something to grow. It was very easy to sit back, fold your hands, and be choked out by weeds all around you. We worked really, really hard to find the right example for this. I couldn't believe it. In examining ancient hieroglyphs, I found exactly the image that Romans 12 conveys. Are you all ready for it? Yeah, that's it. It's, it's perfect. I, w I could say it was taken from a pyramid in, in Egypt, but uh, that wouldn't be true, so I won't say that. The reality of Romans 12 is that while you do nothing, just while you exist, by way of almost an osmotic pressure, the world is trying to conform you into its image. Yeah. You don't have to do something wrong to be conformed in the world's image. You don't have to commit some overt sin. All you have to do to become moral like the world is nothing. When you do nothing, you are becoming a son of this world. See, the common thought is that you have to do evil to become a part of this world. You don't. In fact, if you stop reinforcing the godly design of your spouse, you are degrading into a son. You are being conformed into exactly what your neighbor would be. See, the truth is that it is a crucifying work to act against this pressure at all times, in all ways. That's why Romans 12 says, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. To not offer, to just sit back and do nothing, either good or bad, is in and of itself evil because it will make you into exactly what the world is. This is expressed in marriages like this. I, 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 don't, I don't know what happened. We just, we kind of grew out of love. Yeah, that's the natural state of doing nothing. So I don't, I don't know what happened with my kids. I mean, uh, we, we brought them to church, you know. Yeah, if you don't have full throttle, forward momentum in the kingdom, then you and your children will become exactly what the world is around us. That is the natural state of a human being. All of the pressure of the world in decline is upon you at all times. But it's not the only reality in the kingdom. Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. 
Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. Yeah, those of you that have heard this quoted from Matthew in the King James, it's the kingdom of God suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. And people go, oh, I don't know what to do with that. That sounds militant. Yeah, it sounds militant. It should. God loved this creation enough to act upon it. It was a war and a clash with spiritual powers. They're already at war with you. They're trying to conform you into the image of the world. It takes a forceful man to push back. You're, you're looking at a situation and saying, if I do nothing, it will degrade. I must act what is the right action. That's true at dinner with your spouse when your kid's crying and you just don't want to have to correct them in a restaurant because you wanted a nice meal. It's true when people are coming over to your house and you answer the door, but you and your wife have been fighting and you, so you don't really want to have to address that because, I mean, now there's an audience. We'll just wait for a better time, but now it's nighttime and we're tired, so maybe in the morning, well, he has to go to work, so maybe when he comes home and you realize weeds are growing in your life, all from doing nothing. You have to force the kingdom to happen right then, right there. We, uh, we searched long and hard for this too, and strangely enough, we found this hieroglyph as well. This is what it looks like to have an outward Christian life. One that starts in Jerusalem, moves to Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. It will not be conformed into the world's image. It will not sit back passively. It says, every time that I have realized what God's will is, I will act upon it immediately. Now, I didn't like our hieroglyphs very much. And I'm not very technically minded. So... We wanted to know where in the creation, since it speaks forth the wisdom of God in a language that all men everywhere understand, can you find this principle easily displayed? And we found it at Mount Washington Observatory. And we have a video for you. happens if this man does nothing? He's swept away in the flood of dissipation. It requires constant forward pressure to make any progress in a kingdom of God that is advancing. That's the image that we, but, but I thought still further, and I had to go deep into to the recesses of our bedroom to find this one. I don't usually show people this, but um, this, this is something that came from our bedroom. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know that I've ever showed this to anybody before. This is a wedge. And I don't know what you're thinking about it, but our grandkids play in our bedroom an awful lot. And uh, they, they, like, they like trucks because, you know, we're, we're raising grandkids. And uh, much like that video earlier, the kingdom is an uphill trip. 
it, there, are, there are no flat spots in it. There's, there's, there's no areas of coast. And any time that you are not moving forward, you are moving backwards. The world is on an evil incline. Your heart is on an evil incline, and it cannot be cured except through godly, consistent, righteous action. This is the parable of the sower. You hear the word, you retain yeah. that word, you persevere in that word, and how do you know you're doing it? You produce the kingdom. Amen. So you say, well, look, our marriage is going okay. What are you producing? Okay, look at what you have produced and you will see where changes must occur. Amen. If you don't like what you see in your children, dad, it's your fault. Don't blame it on mom. It's your fault. If you pastor her well, then she will pastor the children well. Amen. Mom, you don't like what you're seeing in your children. It's also your fault. You don't get to blame the husband. You have also a responsibility to hear from God. You have a responsibility to persevere in it. And the thing is, is God gave the husband and the wife to each other for the purpose of constant forward momentum. See, if one falls down, who, who's there to help him up? But if two are there, somebody can help him up. If, if you're there and you're at war, two can defend themselves. The Bible is a wedding story and a war story, and it requires a husband leading and a wife reciprocating to make any advancement. If you're a guy in this room and you have ever sat back and said, I don't know, she, she just seems to be the spiritual leader. You sinned worse than if you took God's name in vain. Yeah. You should never say that. You should never act like that. You have to stand up. You have to lead and watch. The problem is not her rebellion. The problem is your lack of forward momentum. God designed her to follow you. And when she sees it, she will respond. Amen. Doing nothing will cause you to move backwards. You have to take godly action. Did you hear that when pastor was saying, we must have godly, constant, forward momentum? Uh, this is a key to the kingdom and establishing shalom. So husbands, right now, look at your wives and say, say to them, we're going to produce we're going to move forward. All right, look back up at us. So thinking about the video that we saw of the guy resisting what was being exerted on him, what you saw in that video is never more clearly seen than in Jesus' life. And we want you to consider Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now the title that concludes verse 6 is Prince of Shalom. <laughs> Very good. Jesus is the Prince of Shalom, but he is in constant conflict. We want you to consider something. What chapter of the Bible shows that Jesus is being passive? Whenever do we see in the word that he is being a peacekeeper? Zero. Zero. Never do you ever see that. 
Because we want you to understand something. The man who is walking in the perfect will of God is always going to be in conflict with what God is at war with. Guys, I want you to hear this. Husbands, it starts with you. It's your job to walk in the perfect will of God, and thereby you will be at war with what God is at war with. And the understanding of this flow of shalom is that if daddy won't do it, then mama is not going to do it. And certainly the kids won't do it. One important aspect of shalom that we talked about already is that you're fighting the Lord's battles, not your own. And you're establishing his right order, not your own. You're in harmony with God no matter how turbulent the process is. So you can't be afraid of the conflict when establishing shalom. I want to speak to the wives for just a moment here about this. Maybe he's not being mean to you. Maybe you are resisting his effort to establish shalom. You're actually that force that's, that's pushing against him when he's trying to establish shalom. I've had lots of conversations with some of you in this room, and you get your feelings hurt. And I get my feelings hurt sometimes, and we think, oh, he's so harsh. No, maybe you're just being stubborn, and he has to establish shalom with, a, with some force there. This is what Jesus did. Do you think he didn't hurt that lady's feelings when he was at the, at the well? The things that he says sometimes hurt my feelings, and it's establishing right order in us. We've got to consider that and stop pushing back against our, hus our husbands. They are establishing right order. Amen. Let's all turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and we're going to start in verse 25. Verse 25 says, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. This verse means so much to us because it is a picture of what happened when we got here to this place. My shalom, I leave with you. Shalom, I leave with you, but it's my shalom that I give you. That is an incredible understanding here that he gives us his shalom. He gives us his reality of shalom, and it is not ours that we should be worried about. See, he gives it to you, and then you have to fight for it. He grants it to you, and then you have to work at it. He promises you that he will grant you peace, and then you have to go pursue your enemies. He promises the children of Israel that the, that the very land that they have been promised is going to be theirs, and then they have to go out and make war to get it. This is the concept of the entirety of the Bible. See, the truth is, is my family, I, we thought we had peace, but it was our peace. It wasn't his peace. We were off. Maybe we were just off a little bit in our lives. Maybe. But it was producing children that were going to be further off than we had ever thought about being. See, but God gave us his peace. His shalom. It was necessary. We had to find it and we had to begin to fight for it. The biblical definition of peace is his peace. I got to be honest with you. We weren't even on the battlefield and we didn't know it. 
until he gave us his shalom and it's changed everything about our lives. It's changed everything about our, our descendants. It's changed everything about everything that we had hoped to do in the kingdom has been realized because we are now fighting for the very shalom of the heavens. Let's turn to Matthew 10, 11 through 14. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. When you take this verse out of its Hebrew construct, it, it honestly has zero meaning. When you show up at a house, say hello. If they say hello, then great, remain there. If they don't say hello to you, then take your hello with you and go. I don't know. Maybe that would be the 2021 living translation or something. Um, to understand what Jesus is talking about, you have, to, you have to understand that the greeting is shalom and mashlomka. And you have to know that it carries with it this desire to be in right order with God and right order with people. The desire to be in the Lord's battle and in complete harmony in step with him. Then all of the sudden, this means whatever town or village you enter, search for a worthy person. Somebody who wants to do that. Stay in their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. Mashlomka. If that's what they want, if the home is deserving, let your, you remember how Jesus gave you his peace? The same right order you have will start to be developed in them because they want to fight that battle. If not, if it is not, let your shalom return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off of your feet. They're not worthy of the dust. And the dust here is, is your teaching. Honestly, it's the dust of a rabbi is his teaching. If they don't want to get in the battle, get in right order with God and man, as they see it demonstrated in your life, they are unworthy of the kingdom of God. Move on. Don't waste any time. Don't stop. Go find the person who does. Now, this was astounding to us. When I was wrestling with this for the first time, somewhere around 2004, I was meditating on the concept of what is the biggest obstacle that we face? And because we were a garage church, I was thinking, you know, it's, we don't have a sound system. You know, we, we, we don't have funds. What's wrong with us is we lack, lack resources. Then maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's demonic interference. Maybe it's, maybe it's Satan himself trying to stop us. I want you to understand, he can give you finances out of the mouth of a fish. Uh, churches all over the world have done fine without sound systems. Demons can be cast out. The prince of this world can be driven from a land. You know what the one thing the gospel will not work in? A situation where people do not want shalom. I said, so, well, in my house, it just works different. Then you've just excluded your house from the kingdom of God. These are not preferences. They're divine patterns. 
So I've always just kind of felt like we're equal and I don't really lead her and she doesn't really lead me. We just, well, well, friends, that's an ungodly, unbiblical design. And what will happen is you will slide down a slope till nobody is leading. Okay. Uh, in this principle, understand that this is Jesus speaking to the 12 before they begin their very first evangelistic campaigns to a nation that had been prepared for 1,600 years to hear the gospel. And this is what he tells them. And the same principle applied to the 70 when they're sent out to the world. The number one thing we're looking for is a home that wants to get in right order with God. Because if you can start there, there's nothing that can stop it. It's where God started with Abraham. I have chosen him, Genesis 18 says, because he will direct his family. God will not work in the home of, of people that do not embrace his order. It will not happen. He'll work in you to get you to embrace his order, but nothing fruitful will come out of a home until we're embracing the order of God's design. Amen. I just want to encourage you wives, once our family got um, this concept rooted and grounded in us, and especially in me, and I stopped fighting this, then all of a sudden we started producing fruit, and our family started producing fruit, and then all of a sudden I, I really became this, like, shalom. I, I craved it, like this, this peace. I desired it constantly because I, I enjoy being in shalom with my husband because I felt like the world could be on fire around us. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter. We were good. And I knew that we were good and we were right order with Jesus. Yeah. And everything else could fall away yeah. and, and burn to the ground. And it was going to be just fine. And that peace, it gave me such joy and it gave me such confidence. And then all of a sudden I started growing more because no longer was I pushing against him in a, in, a, in a bad way and arguing with him and fighting with these things, when I realized then he could hear more clearly from the Lord, and I had more confidence and security that Jesus is going to move on our behalf, and it, it just brought such joy to my life and relief that I didn't have to fight this any longer. I couldn't wait to get home in the evenings. Uh, I couldn't wait to get up and us pray together in the mornings. In fact, the reason that we could face the world the way that we did is because of the shalom that was cultivated between the two of us. Yeah. There was never a, a time that I didn't feel like we were together in this fight. We stopped fighting in two hemispheres and we joined in a singular battle. It was us against the world. And I got to tell you, that's... That's a fun place it, to it be. Really the, the scripture that we're reading in Matthew 10, it really can only be made sense of in understanding the Hebrew concept of shalom. I challenge you to read it as tranquility and find any meaning in it. I challenge you to read it as the cessation of hostilities and find any meaning in it. This is a, a real key to understanding the ministry of Jesus. Yeah. What, what you should hear in this is an encouragement that God wants to let his ministry of his gospel flow through your home. And he's given you the tools that are necessary, providing for you and your whole household how his kingdom can flow through your home. I'm well, sorry, man. I didn't do this right. I, it's okay that I say it's my bad. Did you know that the Bible clearly, pashatly, orderly, 
without any question in bold letters that are going to be true in every translation in here. It's true in Greek. It's true in Hebrew. It's true in Latin. It's true. Any, the Bible is going to clearly, like a checklist, define for you the order of shalom. Did yeah. you know that? Yeah. Like it's what we've been describing might sound somewhat mystical to you. Like I kind of sort of think I understand what they're talking about. Well, the Bible's actually just going to bluntly say it. Would y'all like to hear it? Yes. So we're going to bluntly read to you out of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Okay, y'all ready? But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Look, in this scripture, Paul is making it very clear that God loves his order. And it's cleanly seen, seen here in the scripture and also in this slide. See, the problem isn't the order. Did you hear how clearly the scripture just defines it? It's plain. It's Peshat. That God is above all. That Christ submits to that rulership. That Christ is the head of man. That man is the head of woman. And that woman is over the children. See, what we have here is, a, is an understanding. There's no problem in the order. Why? Because it's easy for Christ to submit to God. There's no sin there. There's no opportunity for sin. There's no, there should be no problem for man submitting to Christ. Why? Because there's no sin in Christ, and he's only got the best in mind for us. See, there also should be no problem with the children submitting to their mother. Why? Because we expect that. There's sin in that case, but there's also a large disparity of, of ability, of understanding, of talent, of authority. There's a difference there that you see. But where is the problem that most people want to make it? About the woman submitting to a man. And yet God has so clearly defined it that it is beyond contestation. See, the problem isn't the order, but it's the fact that in the case of a man and a woman... You have both of them have the ability and the propensity to sin. And because they are co-easers, they're easering each other. There's not a great disparity in intellect. There's not a great disparity in talent. What they have is you have two people who have been called to be co-easers. So you understand the value, but have a clear delineation according to scripture of who has the right authority and who must go first and who must be the leader in the home. And the Bible makes that amazingly clear. In our transgendered time, this, uh, this becomes very confusing. How could it not? We couldn't even know what it means to be a man. How could it not? We, we, we couldn't even know what it means to be a woman. I mean, today you can be a man dressed as a woman to go win a women's athletic competition. Okay, uh, or boxing match. Uh, that's horrific. Our world is on an evil inclination, and so they reject this entire process. And you may have remained ambivalent about it. Like, you know, I don't know. Some see it this way. Some see it that way. Well, you're doing nothing. You're ambivalent about it. It has caused you to degrade the same way the world has. This is every bit as anointed as John 3.16. This is every bit as inspired as any verse that you love in the Bible. And it is unequivocally clear. It doesn't matter whether you like it or don't like it, except that you not liking it means you don't like something about God. Yeah. So let's work through it just a little bit. 
Is it demeaning for Christ to submit to the Father? I mean, does that make him a mindless robot with no will of his own, subjugated and backwards? Most people wouldn't say yes to that. It was his great joy and delight to be in the flow of the shalom. He said, I only do what my father does. I only say what I hear him saying. Well, why is that not demeaning? Because he knows the father has his best interest in mind. Even unto crucifixion. He knows that his father is fixing a broken system. Is it demeaning for a man to submit to the savior of the world, Jesus Christ? No. Why? Why is it not demeaning? I mean, really? He's going to determine everything that you do? Yes. Why is that okay? Because you know that he's loving towards you in all of his actions. And even if it seems presently harmful, it's for the purpose of fixing the creation. Is it demeaning for children to submit to their mother? No. Mom's got children's best interest in mind. It's the gravity of love. It flows downhill. Why then in our day and time is it considered so demeaning for a woman to submit to a man? It's a great question, isn't it? This is the area of our lives where we have the highest propensity to sin. And we have the highest propensity to sin because she's not a child that I literally speak down to. She is an easer. An easer is not subordinate in and of itself. God can be an easer. I can be her easer. We need each other to uh, be cherished and accomplish a task mutually. But in God's flow of shalom, he did put one easer in charge of the other. To be an easer doesn't make you subordinate. But to be in the flow of shalom, we're all subordinate to somebody. It has to flow downhill. The issue is not God's order. It never has been. The issue has always been sin. When we remove sin from the equation, this becomes a delight. My wife now looks at me and says, hey, what do you think we are to do? And to be honest, I don't want to rush to that decision. Because what she was doing is, is likely every bit as right as anything I would have suggested. But I'm the one given the responsibility to make the final direction. Okay? She's learned that that shelters her in a hundred ways. Because invariably, when things don't go right, because I chose badly, even if it's what she originally wanted to do, it was still her husband's decision. If things do go very, very well, and it's not what she wanted to do, it was her husband's decision. It, it's meant to shelter you. What if you don't have the ability, husband, to choose what is good or bad? Well, that's why Christ makes that choice for you. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. It falls on him. It's derived from him. Now, husbands, the reason I was so upset to hear little inklings of, I don't know, she's just more scholastic than I am. I don't know. I think she's innately more spiritual. Yes, but God made you yes. the leader. Yes. It's your responsibility. And the fact that he gave you an easer that's scholastic and spiritual ought to make you a better leader, Amen. not one that abdicates his leadership. 
If men in this room will stand up and lead their homes, I promise your wife will flourish. Yeah. And ladies, if you're worried that it would be demeaning or make you weak, it didn't mind. No. It actually set loose a... Well, it didn't, it didn't make mine weak. Look, I can say that uh, it, as we're covering this, men, your shoulders were designed by God to carry this load. Ladies, you were designed by God to join in unity with your husband's leadership. I watched such a burden lift off of my wife's shoulders when I began to initiate and step up and lead. I found that my confidence rose and her easership exponentially increased, that God's anointing was there flowing through the right order of what was happening in our home. But looking at this chart, it's clear sin is the obstacle to shalom. And because sin is the obstacle of shalom, one way in Hebrew thought to view the establishment of shalom is to destroy the authority attached to chaos, attached to sin. Shalom is achieved by destroying sin. Let's put up the next slide. We're very familiar with this. This is the word shalom seen in Paleo-Hebrew, reading from right to left. The shin, lamed, vav, mem, destroying authority attached to chaos. This is the meaning of peace that God has established in the biblical language that illustrates it. Are you guys ready for another group exercise? Yes. Oh, this is going to be fun. In our last few minutes here, we want your table leaders to take a picture of your Jericho rose and text it to me. While you're there at the table, we want your group leaders to help us by discussing the physical changes that you see in the Jericho rose. Each family, hang on before you take the pictures. Everybody listen to the rest of the instructions. Each family should identify three. Everybody say three. So every couple that's here should identify three specific areas that you are going to change this week as it relates to Shalom. When you've completed that task, husbands, you can come and take an actual rose here or flower and give it to your wife as a public commitment to biblical Shalom. Take these next few minutes and work on the instructions that are there on the screen. See, the beautiful part about this and the thing that's really very instructive for us tonight is, is to see what happens when you have the right kind of shalom, the right kind of watering that's going on in your life. Something that looked absolutely beyond hope was brought back to life in just a matter of moments. The ongoing nature of what shalom requires... The interesting part about a Jericho rose is if you take these out, you can set them on a napkin, and in 30 minutes to an hour, they'll be exactly as they were when you first saw them. They return to that state very, very, very quickly. Uh, uh, the lifespan on these is amazing of what a constant watering cycle will do. They're designed that you water them, cause them to come back to life, and then you're able to plant them and see something grow. But without constant watering, it is that dry object that you were looking at at the beginning that doesn't seem like any life could ever come out of it. What a beautiful picture of what 
the right kind of shalom in your life and in your homes can do. It may look like it's beyond hope, but when you actually add the water of God's right shalom, it becomes something that's just absolutely amazing. What leadership looks like in the Bible is exactly as is described in Philippians 2. When you bend down to serve, God raises you up. Children don't love their mothers because God has commanded it. They love their mothers because their mothers are always serving the children. Wives don't love their husbands because God has commanded it. They learn to love their husbands because their husband is bending down to serve. That's why we propose on one knee. I don't know what physical changes you observed <laughs> in the Jericho Rose, but I noticed that as it became dense with water, I'm talking about saturated I'm talking about purely hydrated. It began to open. It began to bud forth with life. Like your hearts are supposed to. When watered by pure and right spiritual principles. It began to give off a fragrance. It's intoxicating. <laughs> like the fragrance of Christ in a Christian who has rightly ordered their lives. However you think about Shalom, here's one of the simplest ways that you could see it. Setting him as Lord of me. Say, yes, but who is him? Well, for Jesus, it's the father. He sets him as his Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. For the man, it's Jesus. You can't know the father except through the son. And for the woman, it's her husband. That's why Sarah called Abraham her Lord. And for the children... It's them, mom and dad. When we rightly order our homes, the authority of the father flows all the way through it. When we get in disunity, when there's strife and a court, not even the angels will move when you pray. They know better. Peter literally says it will hinder your prayer. The best thing that you could do is practice setting him as Lord of me. And ladies, if your first thought is, well, yes, Jesus is my Lord. He can't be your Lord if the husband that he gave you is not your Lord. Same way I would tell children, you cannot honor God while dishonoring your parents. It, it cannot happen. This is the vertical and the horizontal relationship. And man, I cannot wait to talk about all of the directions that goes. 
We're 14 days away from week five. The number one question that... (laughs) The number one question that I used to get when we were doing this is, oh, Pastor, I think you've misunderstood. We're here to talk to you about something else. Like, we don't want to talk about dealing with the flesh. We, we don't want to talk about marriage symbolism. I, whatever you're saying about Shalom, can we get to the issues we came here for? The answer is no, because you'll never get the Jericho Rose to open its heart without getting all of these other issues right. Okay? You're going to find that every week builds upon itself. Every principle is a building block. They're integrated. They're interlocked in ways that most have to go through the class many times to begin to understand because God designed it. But I can assure you of this. If you're building in the Abigail design, if you embrace that you, husband, are supposed to mimic God in the relationship and wife you are to mimic the obedient loving powerful church and you work at this ordering well week four with conflict resolution you'll only be in conflict over things that have to do with discerning God's will in week five the intimacy in your life will grow I gotta tell you I've never felt second class in that area not once not ever but it's because it flows from these other principles. And then what comes out of your home is something that you're proud to show the whole world. That's what your future looks like. Something you'll be proud to show the whole world. Continue to develop your love language. Some of you were done too quick. You need to spend more time learning to build praise into God's design of your spouse. Beauty is fleeting. Charm is deceptive. But a woman who fears the Lord, she's to be praised forever, and that should be done publicly. Okay? What we're teaching you is how... We've been together 30 years. We'll tell you the rest of what that means in a few weeks. We love y'all. Stand to your feet and let's pray. Your three items of correction that you are implementing in your home and that that rose represents should live a lot longer than that rose does. Don't let it be... um, A New Year's resolution. The two of us discussed three areas. Those three areas will not go away. As God is my witness, we will win in all three areas. No matter how long you've been doing this, this is an area that we can improve in. If you had trouble thinking of three areas, it's because you don't know yourselves very well. Okay? Ask God to give you insight. And and you'll it can be hard in front of a big group. I mean, you may have just been flustered and had to come up with something. No, reflect on them. I've never met a couple that didn't have three areas they could improve on in Shalom. Okay. And what would the world look like if you do? See, 
You are the best we have to offer, and you're going to build the kingdom everywhere you go. These are the building blocks to do it. Father, we thank you for the chance to come before your great throne and enjoy the relationship that you have with your son and he has credited us with. Let us grow up into that relationship. Lord, let each husband in this room lead his wife into that kind of relationship. May every mother in the room lead their children into that relationship. Lord, everything that you have put under our authority, may it prosper may be watered from the heavens, bud and produce life. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.